0: the sunday school it's 9:30, so we're going to get started thank you for being here we are finally beginning our study of the new testament yes we've spent more than two years getting a sense of the old testament a chronological study through the old testament but now we come to the new testament and the life of christ life of, and ministry of his apostles and the fully revealed mystery of god's redemptive plan uh, this is an exciting time. Hope you see that as an exciting time. How are we exactly going to proceed these next four quarters? Well, I'll give you a little preview here. So our quarter themes are listed on the right of this slide. Our first theme is going to be the Messiah arrives. That's our first quarter. And the second quarter, uh, we'll be talking about the authority of Jesus. That'll be a focus on the ministry of Christ. Oh, actually, let me back up for a second. Talk about the first quarter first. So on the left side are all the lessons we're going to be talking about this quarter. You can see from this list, I won't read through all the lesson titles, but roughly half the quarter we're going to spend on introductory and apologetic material regarding Jesus and the New Testament. And then the other half, we're actually going to start studying uh, what the Gospels have to say and, and a little bit of the rest of the New Testament about Jesus actually coming into the world and then preparing for his ministry. So that's the first quarter that the Messiah arrives. Second quarter, the authority of Jesus. That's our theme. There we focus on the actual ministry of Jesus in the Gospels, looking at both Jesus' miracles and his teaching. Then in the third quarter, we have our theme, The Church Begins. In this quarter, we see the death and resurrection of Jesus and the establishment of his church in the book of Acts. And then our fourth and final quarter, the last quarter of our Answers Bible curriculum is Living as Christians. And there we're going to focus on the missionary journeys of Paul, the missionary ministry of Paul, the teaching of the New Testament epistles, and then the second coming of Christ. So that's our upcoming study. I say this is a really exciting time, not only because we get to talk directly about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, but because, I hope you appreciate by now, the Old Testament has increasingly foreshadowed and foretold and demonstrated everything that's going to happen. Old Testament's been building our anticipation. We should be feeling just like Israel did in the days of Jesus. When's God's plan going to come to pass? When will redemption move forward? When will God send his Savior? When will God remember his people? Now, I meant to show you a slide last week during our review. This is uh, (laughs) based on some of the questions that I asked you. Here's a historical outline that covers many of the important events that we've talked about so far in the Old Testament. Now, again, I'm not going to read through this slide. I hope that maybe this will be useful to you. But as you just look at it, think about how history has shown both man's obvious and great needs and God's promises to meet those needs. Right? At the beginning, at Eden, at the fall, we saw that man brought about, through sin, his own spiritual death, his physical death, and total separation from God. And since the fall, man has continually manifest his rebellion and deservedness to receive the unending and holy, angry punishment of God. Even Israel, God's specially chosen nation, continually turned towards wickedness no matter how many judgments God sent on his people, no matter how much he disciplined them, no matter how many blessings he gave them, no matter how many privileges he gave them, they would not remain faithful to him. Indeed, if the Old Testament has taught us anything, it teaches us the total depravity of man. Man will not turn to God. So how could such a wretched and rebellious creature ever be saved from death and be restored to God? Yet amazingly, in the Old Testament, that's precisely what God has promised will happen. God will save a remnant and restore him. God will save mankind. And then think of the promises that we've seen. Genesis 3, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head, and that seed will only have his heel bruised. Genesis 22, where God said to Abraham, in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. 2 Samuel 7, God says to David, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. How are these going to come to pass? Think of the other promises that we've seen given to Israel. I will circumcise your heart, God says. I will bless you. I will restore you. I will give you prosperity. I will give you dominion. I will pulverize your enemies. I will cause you to return to me and to love me. I will make a new covenant with you. I will forgive your sins. I will establish justice all over the world. I will draw all nations to worship me with true worship. How? I mean, these are just incredible promises. But when we look at mankind, when we look at mankind in general and Israel in particular throughout the Old Testament, we don't see that they're going to be able to be blessed like this. They're hopeless and helpless. How, do, how does man... And Israel in particular moved from this hopelessness and helplessness to forgiveness, salvation, and blessing. Well, the answer gets clearer and clearer in the Old Testament. Now, what is the answer? God is going to send his Messiah. One is going to come who's going to bring these things to pass. He's given different descriptions throughout the Old Testament. God's prophet, God's Davidic king, God's priest. God's messenger of the covenant, God's suffering servant, God's anointed one, even God himself. God says, I will come. So mankind in Israel and us in our study have been waiting for the unveiling of this one, not knowing when he would come, but knowing that that he would come and that his coming was getting closer and closer and closer. Now, if you lived back in that time, and you realized that God's one had finally come, how would you respond? What would be the appropriate response? Well, that's the subject of our lesson today. Our title is, I'll just go back a slide here, or two slides here, The Messiah Has Come. As part of this lesson today, we're going to be looking at three different accounts. Here's our outline. We're going to first look at the account of Simeon and Anna in Luke two twenty-one to thirty-eight. We'll then look briefly at the words of Andrew, the disciple Andrew, in John one forty to forty-two. And then we'll examine the opening of the book of Hebrews, chapter one verse one to chapter two verse four. We we'll want to ask the question: If Messiah has come, how should we react? How should people react? And also, as we're moving through these passages today, we're going to make some comments about how to recognize and appreciate Old Testament quotations that appear in the New Testament. That's our plan. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the revelation of your word that you have revealed what you have done, not just what you are going to do, but also what you have done in sending your son Sending Jesus Christ, sending the Messiah. What a great, great truth that you have revealed. I pray that the people would appreciate just how wonderful it is that that Messiah has come. I pray, Lord, that you'd help me be able to explain, help me to be able to communicate that. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's start with our first passage as we look to answer the question, how ought we to react to Messiah's coming? Let's go to, ooh, I won't show this slide yet. Let's go to Luke chapter 2, verses 21 to 38. Luke chapter 2. So that's page 1021 if you're using the Pew Bible. Luke chapter 1, or Luke chapter 2, verses 21 to 38. Just a few words of background. You probably know a bit about the Gospel of Luke, but just in case, this text is part of an account of the life and ministry of Jesus as recorded by a Gentile physician, the man Luke. And he wrote this account after much research and fact checking. And he also wrote it under the oversight of the apostle Paul. So this is a trustworthy account. And of course, it's an inspired account. But Luke was very careful in the way he put this together. And he wrote this gospel to Gentile Christians. Most specifically, this gospel is addressed to a Gentile named Theophilus, probably a nobleman or a magistrate of some kind. But this is a word. To Gentile Christians. All right, now let's actually look at our passage, starting in verse twenty-one of chapter two, and we'll read down to verse thirty-eight. Please follow along with me as I read. And when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. When the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who are looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Okay, so we're continuing to use our inductive Bible study method as we consider texts of the Bible. And the first step of that method is observation. So let's observe. Notice our people in this passage. We've got Joseph, Mary, Jesus, Simeon, and Anna. And notice where we are in the chronology of Jesus' life. Jesus was recently born to Mary and Joseph, In Bethlehem, Jesus is now now named and circumcised. And then Joseph and Mary come into the temple in Jerusalem to fulfill God's law. Now notice some quotations in verses 22 and 24. Your Bible might have these words in small capital letters. From where do these quotations come? Old Testament, yeah, this is from the law. That's why the phrase, the law of the Lord, appears right before those quotations. These come from the Old Testament. Now, how can we find from where in the Old Testament these quotations come? We recognize these are quotations, but how do we know where they come from? Well, if you're using a study Bible, you should see a small letter at the beginning of each of these quotations. In the text, a small letter uh, raised as a superscript. You might see a small letter A at the beginning of the quotation in verse 23. This letter is a mark for cross-referencing. So you can find that cross-reference or references in the center column of your study Bible. Just look for the number 23 and then the letter A, and if you do so for verse 23, you should see three references, Exodus 13.2 and verse 12, Numbers 3.13 and Numbers 8.17. So your study Bible has told you this is where you can go to see where this verse comes from. If you're using an electronic Bible, if you're using a Bible app, you might similarly see letters next to these quotations. If you then click on the verse, if you just tap it, click on the verse that has that letter, your app will then display for you the various cross-references as hyperlinks. That's probably what your app does. And you can just click on one of those references and the Bible app will take you directly to that cross-reference. How about that? But... If you don't have a Steady Bible or a Bible app, well, it's not so easy, but still not that hard. If you're not using a Bible, a uh, Steady Bible or Bible app, how could you find where these verses that are quoted here, how could you find where they come from in the Old Testament? Yeah, Rob. Okay, yes, if you are just very familiar with the Bible or have various sections of the Bible memorized, you can say, oh, yeah, I remember that that's over in Exodus. Yes, that's one way you might know. How else could you find where these come from? Yes, you could use a concordance. Now, I guess it's becoming less and less common for people to use concordances today because of electronics, but your Bible probably or may have a um, a small concordance in the back, which lists words, various key words in the Bible, and the verses that they appear. So you might go back and look at one of the key words in this, in the verses that are quoted, and say, all right, where else in the Bible is this used? For an even better, more comprehensive search, you can use an exhaustive concordance. You have to actually go buy one, have one, use one, and um, use one somewhere. And it'll give you an even more comprehensive look. You say, I'm looking for the term firstborn. And then you just go to the, the word firstborn in the concordance and see all the different places it, it's listed. And look for, in the concordance, it'll give a little bit of words around the word firstborn as it appears in each text. And you can say, okay, which one matches the one that I see here or most closely matches the one? You can do some other things too besides consulting a concordance. You can do an internet search, especially if using a, a Bible website like Bible Gateway. You can just type in the exact words that you see here or some of the key terms that you see here, and that'll give you all the verses in the scriptures that have these terms. Or you can ask a knowledgeable brother or sister who might have her own or might have his own uh, knowledge of where this comes from or how to get to it. So plenty of ways that you can know where these Old Testament scriptures come from. Now, why is that important? Well, When you're studying the New Testament and you see a quotation in the Old Testament, you're going to benefit greatly in your understanding and in your appreciation if you actually look at the original. If you look at where this quotation is coming from, because the author is bringing it up. The author knows about it. So when the author wrote it, if you want to understand the author's intention, it's useful for you to know what verses he's actually talking about. So let's actually do this for, well, at least one of these verses. Look at verse 24. One of the cross-references in Luke 2.24 is Leviticus 12.8. Leviticus 12.8. So let's actually turn there. Keep your finger in Luke 2.24, but turn over to Leviticus 12.8.
1: I'll turn there too,
0: just to make sure I have the right passage for you. Uh, Leviticus 12.8. All right, then the few Bible, that's page 114. No, page 115. So Leviticus chapter 12 was actually kind of a short chapter. I'm not going to read this chapter, but scan these eight verses for a few moments. Now, the passage in Luke mentioned days of purification. He says, after the days of purification, Joseph and Mary brought Jesus into the temple. According to Leviticus 12, what are the days of purification? Yes, it's 33 days. I think, Roy, maybe you said that. Why do we need to have these 33 days of purification? What's being purified, or who's being purified? There is a ceremonial uncleanness that that someone needs to have purified. And in that in this case, it is the not the child itself, but actually the mother. The mother is considered to be unclean whenever she gives birth, and depending on whether she has a boy or a girl, there's a certain number of days that she needs to be purified of her uncleanness. There's seven days, and then add 33 days to that for a total of 40 days if you have a son. It's a little bit longer if you have a daughter, a total of 80 days, I think, or, or no, a little bit a little bit less than that. So the days of purification are the day for the mother after she gives birth. And for a son, it would be about 40 days. Now, a sacrifice is then required at the end of the days of the purification for the woman's atonement and cleansing. That's what Leviticus 12 says. Normally, what animals should be offered? Leviticus 12 tells us what animals should be offered normally for for the mother's cleansing a lamb, and what other animal? Well, we'll get to the two, the two turtle doves and two young pigeons, but normally it's just a lamb and then one of those birds, either a a turtle dove or a, a young pigeon. A lamb for a burnt offering and the bird for a sin offering. But then there's a provision that would allow some couples to offer just two birds instead, two turtle doves or two young pigeons. When is this substitution allowed? When they can't afford it. When they're poor. Now, this is an important background for what we see back in Luke 2. You can turn back to Luke 2 now. Because when Luke is, a, is a quoting what, uh, is quoting from the Old Testament uh, next to what Mary and Joseph are doing in the temple... He doesn't mention a lamb and a a bird. He says they came to offer the sacrifice of two turtle doves or two young pigeons. So basic inference here, what does this indicate about Joseph and Mary? They can't afford the regular sacrifice. They're poor. They have to give the, the two birds instead. When they offer the sacrifice for atonement and purification for Mary, for the mother, So that's what they're doing in the temple, at least part of what they're doing. We don't have time to investigate the cross-reference for verse 23, but if we did go back and look at the verses from Exodus and I think Leviticus there, we would see why were the people of Israel required to present or dedicate their firstborn to the Lord? It is in commemoration of what event? What specifically in the Exodus? Yes, sir. That's right. When God passed over, the people of Israel did not kill their firstborn, but slew all the firstborn of Egypt. God says, I want you to remember this, and I want you to make this as a memorial for you and your children. Tell them or dedicate your firstborn children to me. And when they ask about it, tell them what happened in the Exodus. Tell them how I spared your firstborn. So we see Joseph and Mary, they're being obedient to these Old Testament commands. That's why they're in the temple. They're doing these things. Now let's keep going with our observations in Luke 2. We see Simeon. Notice how the man Simeon is described here. He's righteous, devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. That is the comforter or solace of Israel. The rabbis use this term to talk about the Messiah, the coming one. And the Messiah would bring consolation to Israel, comfort to Israel after all Israel had been through. So he's looking for the Messiah. And we also hear that the Holy Spirit was upon Simeon. And then there was something quite unique about Simeon. Despite no prophets in Israel giving new prophecy for about 400 years since Malachi, the Holy Spirit revealed to Simeon that Simeon would see God's coming one before Simeon died. Now imagine being in Simeon's place. God gives him this this notice, and it's, it's like Simeon says to himself, you mean Messiah is coming in my lifetime? I'll be allowed to see him with my own eyes? You can imagine Simeon's great anticipation. When? When will I see him? And the Spirit leads Simeon into the temple. And then Simeon sees Jesus and his parents. And then notice what Simeon does. He takes the child, he takes Jesus into his arms. Again, can you imagine that? Israel's been waiting. You've been waiting, if you're one of them. You've been waiting year after year for God to send his Messiah. And now he's here. He's right in your arms. A little baby. But the coming one that God said he would would bring. And Simeon blesses God. And notice Simeon's prayer of blessing. Simeon tells God that Simeon can die totally in peace. Because Simeon has seen the Lord's salvation. And this child, Simeon says, will be a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of God's people, Israel. Now, you may notice your Bible also indicates, or probably through capital letters, that the first half of verse 32 is an Old Testament quotation or an Old Testament allusion. Not illusion with an I, but allusion with an A. That is, it is a reference to an Old Testament text. And this is actually a, to a reference to multiple verses in Isaiah, which describe God's coming as light to those in darkness. Uh, God's, not, not only God's coming, but God's servant coming. Remember, those things are actually the same. Most directly, Isaiah 49, verse 6, says this, speaking of God's Messiah. It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Now, that word for nations in Hebrew usually refers to the Gentile nations. So this is exactly what Luke is saying here, a light to the Gentiles, a light to the Gentile nations. That's what God promised his Messiah would be. Now, notice Joseph and Mary's response. So at Simeon's words, they marvel. They're filled with wonder. Simeon also blesses the parents. May you be blessed, Joseph and Mary. But he warns Mary, this one will cause the rise and fall of many in Israel. He will be a sign opposed, and a sword will pierce your own soul. And to what end? That the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Notice at the same moment that Simeon declares these things to Joseph and Mary, the holy widow, Anna, comes up also. And notice what she does. She Gives thanks to God, and she continues to speak of Jesus to all those who are looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. I notice how that phrase, the redemption of Jerusalem, is very similar to what we heard earlier. Simeon was looking for the consolation of Israel. That's the same thing as looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Waiting for Messiah. Waiting for God's promises to be fulfilled. All right, so we made these observations. That's step one. Step two of our three steps of Bible interpretation, or yeah, Bible study, we interpret. So let's interpret. Why does Luke, our writer, explain Mary and Joseph's actions by quoting the law of Moses? He didn't have to make reference to the Old Testament. He didn't have to bring up those verses. Why did he do that? Uh, In the back. okay, I think that's definitely part of it. It does show something about the righteous character of Joseph and Mary, that they're fulfilling the law in every way, and that's consistent with Jesus' own fulfillment of the law. But there is another reason. Why else might Luke find it necessary to quote the Old Testament as part of showing what Joseph and Mary are doing? Is that another hand? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, let's see. That indication that this was the Messiah. Let me think about that. I don't know if there's anything necessarily messianic about this, but the particular commands that they're fulfilling from God and the law, it is consistent with what the Messiah and maybe even Messiah's parents would be expected to do. But I think we're actually looking at something a little bit more basic. Remember who he's talking to. He's talking to Gentiles. He's not talking to people who are that familiar with the law. And so when he says, okay, they came to Jerusalem, to the temple, to offer sacrifices, Gentile might be wondering, for what? Why did they have to do that? Oh, well, you understand, because in the Old Testament law, there, there's some purification that they needed to do. And they needed to offer these particular sacrifices. You see, they were, they were not just going to the temple for any old reason. They were fulfilling the law. This is an explanation. This is a clarification for his Gentile readers. But I think you're right, Roy, that there's a, there's a connection here about um, showing the righteousness of Joseph and Mary and even the, the pattern of righteousness that will characterize Messiah's life. Another question here. How would you describe Simeon and Anna's emotions upon seeing the Lord's coming one? What emotion characterizes Simeon and Anna. Yeah, Joe. Joy, yeah. Um, We don't see terms that are are explicitly joyful, but we see Simeon blessing God. We see Anna giving thanks. We see Simeon telling God, I can die now because I've seen your salvation. And I don't think it takes much imagination to imagine what they were feeling. They were excited. They were really just glad. I think even elated they're just filled with joy. God's Messiah has come. And that's totally consistent with what we actually see in in the first couple chapters of Luke. There's just joy, 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 joy all, all over the place now that Messiah has come. So yes, they're filled with joy, filled with thankfulness, filled with contentment. Now, what does Simeon mean by his various warnings to Mary? It's going to be a sign opposed, fall and rise of many, a sword's going to pierce your soul. What is he talking about? What is Simeon referring to? Exactly. He's referring to Christ's rejection, even Christ's death. At Christ's birth, God has given enough understanding to Simeon for him to reveal to Mary. Mary, understand that even though it's so wonderful that he's here, he's going to be rejected. He's going to suffer. And you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer as you see his rejection, as you see even his death. A sword will pierce your own soul. You'll be filled with grief when you see all this happen. And we know later in John nineteen twenty five. John tells us that Mary was there at the cross when Jesus was being crucified. It doesn't say anything about what she felt at that instance, but we can imagine how she felt. And Jesus told John at that point, take care of my mother now that I won't be able to. Now, why is Simeon's word given only to Mary? The, the warning is given only to Mary and not Joseph. I mean, shouldn't Joseph be warned too? Yeah, that's exactly right. We kind of see Joseph drop out of the gospel narrative uh, kind of without any explanation. And the implication seems to be that Joseph died. Joseph wasn't around by the time that Jesus had completed his ministry. He's not there at all. And uh, there are other indications that Joseph had died because they they don't refer to Joseph either. They'll talk about Jesus's mother and his brothers and his sisters, but they won't talk about Joseph. So he seems to have died before Jesus went to the cross, which makes sense why he's not being warned here because he's not going to experience the sorrow that Mary would. Of course, there's nothing here about Mary being a co-redemptress by experiencing this sorrow or um, doing any sort of salvation work. He's just warning her, you're going to be sad based on what's going to happen to your son, the Messiah. But despite that, the overall attitude of Simeon and Anna is joy. Joy and uh, amazement and anna also declares the message or declares something about this messiah to everyone who's there in the temple everyone who's looking for the consolation of israel the redemption of jerusalem she starts talking about him to other people now by sending his messiah what attributes is god displaying Yeah, it shows his sovereignty. He waited until the exact right time. What else? His faithfulness, right? He promised he would come, and now he has come. And of course, this is also a sign of God's love and kindness. Wow, the Redeemer is here—the one who's going to save and deliver, um, uh, deliver, deliver mankind. All those who would believe in the Messiah has now come. That is a great kind gift of God. So God is putting his own character on display also. So we see these things in Luke. Let's jump over from Luke for a moment to where we see another person react to the coming of God's Messiah. And this is going to be in the book of John. Look at John chapter 1, verses 40 to 42. So John is right after the book of Luke. John chapter 1, verses 40 to 42. Now, the Gospel of John was written by John the Apostle, and he writes to Jews. He writes to probably both unsaved Jews and maybe new Jewish believers. Now, listen to what John says about Andrew when Andrew heard John the Baptist declare that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Hear what the Apostle John says Andrew then did. So, John 1, verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Okay, small passage here, but some interesting things for us to notice. What does Andrew do when Andrew finds out that the Messiah has arrived? Yeah, Joe. Yeah, yeah, he goes and gets his brother. And the whole idea is, I want to bring you. We found the Messiah. Simon, look, Messiah is here. Let's go see him. He brings Simon to Jesus. He tells Simon about Messiah, and then he brings Simon to Jesus. Now there's some interesting things here regarding the term Messiah. We see the term in verse 41. The term comes from the Hebrew word Mashiach, which means anointed one or anointed. In the Old Testament, who was it that was anointed with holy oil? Yeah, Joe. David was, but not just David. Who else? Actually, types of people were anointed with holy oil. Two main types. The priests were anointed and the kings. Priests and the kings. Originally, according to the law, it it was just the priests. But when Israel started having kings, the kings also became anointed with the holy oil. And that did start with David or that, that did include David. I think Saul was also anointed and many other kings were. But this anointing of holy oil was associated with God's priests and God's kings. Over time, though, the term anointed one, while it, it did refer to the king of um, Judah and Israel, it came to be a synonym for God's future king, the ordained Davidic king that God would bring in the future, the Messiah, what we call the Messiah, the one who would restore Israel. So the term Uh, anointed one, Messiah, that was the term that meant the one who's going to come and accomplish the things that God's promised for Israel. Now, remember that the book of John, though, is not written in Hebrew. It's written in Greek, as is the rest of the New Testament. And so the word for Messiah in verse 41 is not the Hebrew Mashiach, but it's actually a Greek transliteration, Messias. It sounds very similar, Messias. It's just the taking the Hebrew word and putting Greek letters on it. Now, this word is almost never used in the New Testament. This is one of the two times, I think. Instead, the New Testament normally uses a Greek word, which also means anointed one. And it's the term that we see at the end of verse 42. It's the term Christ. So John, therefore, is making clear to his readers, Messiah equals Christ. That's why he even says Messiah can be translated into Greek as Christ. When Andrew went and got his brother, we found the Messiah, the Messias. That means Christ. We found the Christ. Now, we're very familiar with the word Christ. We use it as a synonym or an alternate name for Jesus. But technically, Christ is not a name. It's a title. It means Messiah, anointed one, God's promised Davidic king. So whenever we hear the term Christ, we're basically hearing the word Messiah and all that that connotes. In a Hebrew's mind. Now, by the way, you may notice that the Apostle John also does another translation for his readers. He says that John called Simon Cephas, or Kephas. I think it's Kephas. And then he says, which is translated Peter. Now, Cephas comes from the Aramaic word for stone. While Peter, Petros, is the Greek word for stone. Now, remember at this time in Palestine, many people, especially in northern Israel... Around Galilee, they spoke Aramaic, which is a Semitic language similar to Hebrew, popular in the Middle East. They spoke Greek, or they spoke both. That was their normal language. So let's ask a little interpretation question, back to step two of our method. Why does the Apostle John take time to translate these Hebrew and Aramaic terms into Greek for his readers? Why would he want to do that? Yeah, Rob. I think you're on the right track, Rob. It's possible that there's something going on here with what his audience normally speaks, what kind of language. But if it were simply, oh, they didn't recognize Hebrew, then why mention the Hebrew term at all? He could have just used the word Christ, or he could have just used the word Peter. So why mention Cephas and Messias? I think there's something further going on here it's actually that his audience it may be a mixed audience but his audience is familiar with both of these terms but john wants to clarify they actually mean the same thing those of you jews because remember john's writing to jews you've heard all about the messiah in the old testament don't get confused that's not a different person from christ they are the same thing so when I'm talking about Christ, John is clarifying for his readers, I'm talking about the Messiah that you've heard and know all about from the Old Testament. I'm using a different term, but it means the same thing. Messiah that you know from the Old Testament is Christ. And the same thing is going on with Cephas and Peter. Yes, this is what Cephas means in, in, in Hebrew. I want to clarify that there are two different people. There's not Cephas and then Peter. They're the same person. And I think we could actually probably fall into the same error if you've ever read one of the epistles that mentioned Cephas, or maybe for the first time you read it, you're like, who's Cephas? I don't know. That's just Peter. That's just another way to say Peter's name. Anyways, so John's clarification is helpful for those who otherwise might not be sure that those terms mean the same thing. The, The Messiah is Christ. That They mean the same thing. But again, let's notice what Andrew did when hearing about Messiah's coming. He went found his brother Simon, told him about Messiah, and then brought him to Messiah. Now let's look at one other passage to continue to hear one more answer about how we ought to react that Messiah has come. Let's now turn to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1, we're going to be reading the whole chapter just a little bit into chapter 2. Hebrew towards the end of the New Testament, Hebrews. Hebrews chapter one, verse one down to chapter two, verse four. Now, just a quick word on Hebrews. The author of Hebrews is unknown, though most conservative evangelical commentators and interpreters would say it was, it was either, or certainly an a, a apostle or a, a apostles associate, probably Paul himself or someone associated with Paul. There's definitely an apostolic ring to this book, even if the author cannot be determined for certain. But anyways, let's now read our passage, Hebrews 1.1 to chapter 2, verse 4. Here's what he says. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. But to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son? Today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire? But of the sun, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And... You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all become old like a garment. And like a mantle, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits? sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. Okay, back to step one of our study method. Let's observe. Notice verse one. Our writer points out that God has spoken to the fathers in in old days, in the prophets, in many portions and ways. But there's a contrast in verse two. In the present, in the last days, however, God has spoken to people through whom? Well, that was the old days, the prophets in the old days, but now through his son, yes, through Jesus. And then we get a number of momentous declarations the writer gives about God's Son, the one who's given God's revelation now. Verses 2 to 4 say, The Son is the heir of all things. The Son made the world. That's the Son, the the, the one who came from the Father. Uh, I'm sorry, the, the one, yeah, like the family relationship son, not the burning ball of fire. The sun is the radiance for the brightness of God's glory, the very brightness of God's glory. The sun is the exact representation of God's nature. The son upholds all things with his powerful word. The son made purification of sins. The sun sat down at the right hand of the majestic Father on high. The sun showed himself better than the angels of God, and the son inherited a more excellent name than any angel. Now, verses 5 to 13 feature a number of quotations to the Old Testament. We don't have time to investigate each, or each of those and explain them. I recommend you check those out later. But notice how the writer uses these verses. He's drawing on what the Old Testament says, contrasting angels and the sun. Verse 5, no angel was ever called God's son. Verse 6, angels were told to worship the Son. Verse seven: Angels are ministers to and servants of God. While verse eight, the Son actually reigns as God. Verses ten to twelve: The Son created the world, but is un, but is eternal, unlike the world. And verse thirteen: The Son, not angels, will receive all the kingdoms of the earth. Verse fourteen also says: Angels are servants to those who will inherit salvation. And then notice the outcome of this discussion in chapter two, verse one. For this reason, for what I've just said, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard so that we don't drift away. The author then explains his reasoning a little more. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, unchangeable, and disobedience to that message was punished severely, how shall any of us escape if we neglect the salvation spoken by the Son? And confirmed by God to men by various signs and wonders. So we've made these observations. Let's go back to step two interpretation. What is the past revelation to the fathers by the prophets mentioned in verse one of chapter one? Yes, the Old Testament. This is just shorthand for talking about the Old Testament. Yes, not every single writer was. in the office of prophet in the Old Testament, but they counted as prophets as they revealed God's scripture and as they wrote it down. So when he says they spoke to our fathers, to the prophets, he's talking about the Old Testament scriptures, which is what he actually cites in most of chapter one. Another question, if the sun is the brightness of God's glory and if he's the exact representation of God's nature, what does that make the sun? Is equal with God. If you have the very glory of God, if you're the brightness of his glory, and if you exactly represent his nature, you have to be God because no one else can do that. The sun is God. He makes that he's making that clear. Now, what is the point of contrasting the sun with the angels? He does this repeatedly in chapter one. Why is he contrasting the or what is the point of or I'm sorry, what is the conclusion of his contrast of the sun versus the angels? How does the sun compare to the angels? Yeah, he's way better. He's way higher. He's way more exalted. The sun is better than any created angel, which makes sense because he's God. Now, according to Hebrews 1, 1 to 2 and chapter 2 verses 1 to 4, what did both the angels and the sun do? Even though they're different and the sun is better, what did they both do historically? They, they both ministered in a way. Angels are particularly known as ministers. But what did they both bring to the world? Yeah, Rob. Yeah, they, they were messengers that brought about God's revelation. Now, sometimes this is really explicit in the Old Testament regarding angels. Uh, an angel will convey a vision to Daniel or another one of the prophets uh, even where it's not explicit, the angels were connected with the, with the revealing of God's Old Testament. But there's a difference in the New Testament. It's not angels who are revealing it. It's the Son himself. They're both revealing God. They're both revealing what God has. Uh, they're both revealing God's message, but it's the Son in the New Testament, and it's, uh, it's just angels in the Old Testament. Now, whose revelation is most important? Well, they are, in a sense, yes, they're they're all important. They all have the same kind of character. But he's making a distinction. One's going to be more important for his readers than the other. And that's the revelation of the sun. Now, this is not to say that the revelation of the sun cancels out the revelation of the angels. Not at all. He's saying he's going to make a, he makes a contrast based off of that. The author asserts the superiority of the sun over the angels, and he warns his listeners listeners, to listen to the sun's message and not drift away from it. Why would he need to do that? Why show it? the sun is superior to any angel, and you've got to pay attention to the sun's message and not drift away? Why? Why would he need to say that? Yeah, this is uh, their salvation is, is certainly at stake if they were to drift away. But if he has to give this exhortation, and this is a principle that we can exercise to some extent throughout the Bible. If someone has to give an exhortation in a certain situation, there's a reason for that. That means if he's saying, don't drift away, you better pay attention. That means the people are being tempted to drift away and not pay attention. They were tempted to downplay, neglect, or even reject the revelation of the Son. And the the writer of Hebrews is is trying to point out to them, look how much better the Son is than any angel in the Old Testament. You respect Old Testament revelation as you ought, but how much more ought you to respect, revere, and fear the revelation given by God's Son? If you are going to be punished for altering, rejecting, or disobeying the revelation of angels, how much more God himself in the Son? Don't dare think that you can just ignore or reject the revelation of Jesus. Don't drift away. Pay close attention to Messiah and Messiah's word. You're being tempted to, but I'm warning you, don't neglect so great a salvation. So, we can bring together some thoughts from this passage and from the other passages today regarding our initial question, how ought we to react to Messiah's coming? Simeon shows us we ought to celebrate. We ought to bless God. We ought to give thanks. We ought to feel peace if we're trusting in God, because Messiah has come. Anna and Andrew, they also show us we ought to tell others. Tell them about this great news. Bring them to the Messiah. And then the writer of Hebrews shows us a little more soberly, we've got to pay attention to Messiah's message. We've got to beware drifting away from it. This is serious. Messiah has come. This is a critical message. We've got to pay attention. Now, these, these reactions, they weren't simply for the time of these people. They're still true today. We should be reacting in this way. So the question is, are we? Do we? The world has long awaited um, the coming. Let me see. Did I have this on the next slide? Yes, I do. This is step three of our inductive Bible study method. Remember, step one, observation. Step two, interpretation. Step three, application. Let's think about Application. The world has long awaited the coming of a savior for helpless, rebellious men, which is what we are without God's intervention. Are we elated that Messiah has finally come, that our deliverance has finally been revealed, that light has come to the Gentiles and to Israel? Are we, are we glad about that? Are we so glad that we want to tell others about Messiah, bring others to Messiah? It is the way that you rejoice in good news, isn't it? You share it with others. Also, have we understood the seriousness of Messiah's coming? Messiah's arrival is not simply a cause for celebration, but a notice that a critical message has come, and we've got to pay attention to it. Do we pay attention? Are we careful not to drift away from it? Have we already drifted away from? Have we downplayed? Have we neglected? Have we modified what Messiah revealed about God? Do we neglect so great a salvation and therefore bring wrath upon ourselves? Truly the fact that Messiah has come is such a great cause for joy. So my brothers and sisters at Calvary, let us celebrate the arrival of God's coming one and pay close attention to what Messiah has revealed about God. Questions or comments about today's lesson? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me see for a second mm. Well, in the original text, I can only answer this answer to some, some respect since I don't yet have the great analyzing capabilities for, for Greek, but I do know this in the original text that the, uh, the text was written in all capital letters and there were no spaces. So there's not going to be any indication in the Greek like, oh, this is capitalized, so this is God, and this is not capitalized, so this his does not refer to God. So when we see things capitalized like his in our Bibles, that's a help from the translator saying the sense of this passage, grammatically and contextually, is this has to be God here. And I think that we can appreciate that even if we don't have a great knowledge of Greek, because we can say, well, if you're the exact representation of or the the he in in context that has to be referring to someone else besides the son, and the only other one mentioned here that makes sense is God, uh, specifically the father, but God as a triune God. If he's the exact representation of that God and the brightness of his glory, he has to be God. So the way it's been, the way that he, that his is capitalized, it is justified in, in these verses. Any other questions or comments? That's a good question, Bill. Okay, well, thank you for being in class today. That brings us to the end of our lesson. Next time, we're going to look at why we can trust the New Testament as it has been handed down and preserved for us. Let's close in prayer. Well, God, we thank you that Messiah has come. Thank you so much. Lord, you are spirit. No one can see you. No one can uh, ever find you. And yet you, by sending your son, Jesus, you took on flesh. You became one of us. You came to deliver us. That is so amazing. That's incomprehensible that the the God who is, who is so great and glorious, took on human flesh came to save a helpless and hopeless people. But thank you. Thank you for coming to save us. Thank you for being so merciful. Thank you for keeping your promises. Thank you for revealing it to us, that it wasn't simply something that happened and we never knew about, but you've told us. You've given the message to us. Thank you for sending messengers, by by raising up evangelists, by raising up faithful people to pass on this message to us so that we can hear it, so that we can believe it, so that we can rejoice in it. Lord, I pray that we would be rejoicing in this message today, that you're Messiah, that Jesus, you have come. And God, I pray that we would do all these things that these men in the scriptures, men and women in the scriptures did, celebrating, bringing others to hear this good news, and paying close attention. I pray that you would do more of that at Calvary today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you, guys. See you next week, or maybe not next week, the week after. Have a good Easter.